Hi there, I'm Dan Jones and this is my podcast. I'm an oceanographer working at the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge, UK, and on this podcast I aim to have conversations, long format, typically casual, with folks whose work intersects with climate in some way, whether they're people who work directly on the physical system itself, on the Earth system, or on some other aspect of climate, like climate change communication. My guest this week is Cameron Brick. Cameron is a social psychologist, so he's a little bit different from the uh, other guests that I've had on here, but his work is relevant to climate for sure, uh, because he researches the psychology of how people respond to society-level problems like climate change. Uh, he thinks about motivations, he thinks about social influences, and he tries to quantify all of those different influences and the results. Uh, so Cameron works at the Winton Center for Risk and Evidence Communication at the University of Cambridge, and he's also part of the Cambridge Social Decision-Making Lab. Uh, so we met a few weeks ago. I gave this talk at Darwin College at the University of Cambridge also. Um, and the talk, uh, you know, normally my talks are about just the physical system. They're just about the ocean. Uh, they're about how the ocean responds because that's what I am. I'm a physical scientist. That's my domain of expertise. But every now and then I like to uh, give talks to broader audiences like social scientists and humanities scholars um, because, well, I want to hear from them. I want to have conversations with uh, folks who are working in very, very different disciplines than mine. Um, pretty much always get something out of those interactions. They're uh, really enjoyable, and you just get a totally different perspective. So that's something that I encourage everybody to do. Go find your humanities colleagues. Go find your social science colleagues and talk with them and uh, strike up a dialogue. So, uh, yeah, Cameron and I started chatting there at Darwin College, and I invited him onto the show, and he graciously accepted and then uh, very nicely spent uh, a couple of his hours this morning with me as always, I really appreciate that. I always appreciate my guests' time because they're all busy people. I really enjoyed our conversation, and uh, I hope that you enjoy it as well. There are a couple of times where I feel like I dropped the ball and a couple of times where my brain just completely stopped working. But Cameron was a very good conversational partner. He helped me keep the ball rolling. <laughs> he uh, picked things up where I stumbled, and uh, that was very good. I'm always very happy to uh, have assistance in that way, in that manner. Um, yeah, but I, I left it all in. It's all in there. I didn't edit any of that awkwardness out, so it's all uh, all there. We mentioned a couple of books. One of them is uh, Merchants of Doubt, and in the conversation I forgot the second author. It's Naomi Oreskes is the first author, and Eric Conway is the second author, so uh, my apologies to forgetting your name, Eric Conway, uh, during the conversation. We also talk about this book, uh, The Righteous Mind, by Jonathan Haidt. That last name is uh, H-A-I-D-T. Uh, and both of those are really good books. They're really interesting to read, and we discuss those a little bit. So yeah, let's go ahead and get into it. Here's my conversation with Cameron Brick. Hope that you enjoy it. Here we go. So coffee... So you were saying that, like, if you drink coffee every day, mm -hmm. you were saying that, like, um, there's you... a pen on the floor. Oh, yeah. Or do you want to, like... Sure, I can draw it. Like, write it. I'm there, too. Yeah. 
have so basically, if this is your alertness over time and it just goes up and down, that's normal. Yeah. It's actually there's a ultradian rhythm that about ninety minute cycles throughout the day. What's ultradian? Uh, sorry, more than once per day. More than once per day. Okay. Yeah. So like circadian would be daily. Okay. And then ultraadian more than once per day. Oh, ultraadian. Okay. I didn't, so it, I hadn't, yeah. really, this should look like this, scalloping up and then down. As but anyway, let's just say it's even. Um, what happens when you drink coffee is that you can boost your alertness. It's an adenosine antagonist, so it tells the body uh, we've just slept a lot. Yeah. Essentially, <laughs> get out there, get it done. It's tr oh, it tricks your body into thinking it's had a full night yeah. of, of sleep. Basically, yeah, but. The body is very good at regulating its own alertness, yeah. alertness level. It has ex extremely good sensitivity. So over time, if you do this, what happens is that your normal rhythm becomes subdued. Uh, your adenosine, you need even more adenosine signal to get to the same alertness. Oh my you end up right in the middle. Yeah. And coffee is associated with sleep, uh, um, sleep lower sleep quality, even taken early in the morning. Yeah. Because it has a really long half-life. So even when you when we go to bed tonight, we'll still have some significant coffee in our system. I know one of my um, colleagues from grad school, um, she's found that she can't have coffee, like, uh, even it's, after lunch. She has to, it's like, basically have, noon you know, for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. the same for her. She I'm basically very to has it. to have coffee before lunch. Otherwise, she's just up, and she's up way later than she wants to be. Yeah, so she's also really sensitive there to it. There's a genetic you know. component to that. Yeah, but it, it's so it's funny, right? Because like you said, you love it. I love it. Lots of people love it. Yeah. But it's almost like a, a ritual. You know, it's just a it you is. want you want a liquid. You want a warm it liquid. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a treat and uh, and lovely. Yeah. I guess. Um. I mean, tea tea can work too, and that's certainly you know, popular here, you know, people having lots of tea, right? Super it's a, popular. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it can work, but I don't know, something about coffee just does it for me. I, yeah. I like tea too. I'm, I'm not anti-tea. I'm happy with tea. <laughs> it's fine. I'm happy with either one. Um, yeah, so the, these are the microphones. They look great. You know, they are, uh, it's interesting trying to take them through airport security. <laughs> They're like, oh, what, what, what the heck is those? this? Yeah, they don't look like microphones. No, they don't look like microphones. They look like you could probably fit some drugs in there <laughs> if you were, if that was your objective. You know, you could stuff them full of, of things. Something. Yeah. Um, you, do you not get the road noise? Yeah, we get some road noise. It's yeah, fine. it's fine. It's fine. Yeah, this is a very relaxed, barely produced kind of just yeah, yeah. very casual sort of conversation. It's all fine. I think, you know... For me, that way lies madness, I think. If I got really obsessive uh -huh. about, I need to get the sound perfect. Sure, you know, sure, I think sure. I could just drive myself nuts with sure. that. And so I don't worry about it as much. And also, it's kind of, I don't know, it's nice. You capture, like, just the ambient sound, like what the conversation sounds like, you know? There is a deadness to a really quiet studio that is slightly weird. Yeah, and it, can be, right. it can be unnerving, right? You stop talking for a second, and there's just, all the sound is just sucked out of the room. Yeah. There's just nothing going on, and it feels really formal. Um, yes, so you're over at, you're just like across the road, right? My you're, house. you're nearby, yeah. Yeah, it's really yeah. close, yeah. Yeah, so did you come, did you come straight from there yeah. this morning? Yeah, I just worked from home and then biked in and now I go to work after. Yeah. Nice, yeah. Thanks for doing this, yeah. I'm excited. I'm yeah, glad, my pleasure. I'm glad to have you here. I'm glad you're here. Thank you. I'm, I'm hoping we can, yeah, we can have a very casual chat. I got a sense of how you like to do it and, uh, and then maybe we can loop around to the sort of behavioral side of climate change stuff and... But we can or, or not, yeah. it's fine either way for me. We can just talk, I'm sure our histories are just interesting to chat about. 
I think so. I mean, that's I like talking to people about you know where they've come from. Yeah. It's a little warm. I think I'm gonna take this jacket off. Sure. It was okay walking in, but now it's like a little bit warm. Do you normally wear a jacket um, at work? Sometimes. I don't know. I'm kind of weird about it. I kind of just like it, so I just kind of do it sometimes. Sure. You know, it's um, not every day, but uh-huh. if I'm doing something or if I'm giving a talk or something, of I kind of like to throw throw a little jacket on. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, I'm sorry I missed your talk the other week. That looked interesting. Which I wanted one? to go to that. It was. Um, Is that the human behavior group? Yeah, that one. Yeah. Mm. How did that go? Did that go? Actually, right? it was great. Yeah. yeah, they liked it. So thanks. It went well. Had some good questions. And, yeah, it was very practitioner oriented, so they were very curious, like, how do we use this? I'm pretty basic science, so I don't know exactly, but it's it's relieving to hear from some practitioners and marketers of pro-environmental stuff that they're finding some of the same insights. That is, you can't brand it um, with the happy Mother Earth image all the time because you're turning off people that might be willing to do the thing you want but don't want to be part of that group. Oh, right, yeah. So you, so can't, that's, you that's, can't brand climate change like or, like or environmental anything. You should be right. careful branding it with, with things that signify certain identities and groups because yeah. you, there's a lot of people in the middle who don't want to be associated but would be happy to conserve water or avoid buying a rhino horn or whatever it is that you're trying to do. That's really interesting, right? That's like, that's, that's the, the juice. That's fascinating. I <laughs> think it's very to interesting too. Yeah. So that was nice that we saw some concordance there between their, their campaigns and what I was showing. Oh, so the audience was like, they have campaigns? They were like actively... Yeah, there's, for ex- there's one group that has, um, called Traffic. They do wildlife trade reduction mm-hmm. or trying to make wildlife animal, plants and animal trade more sustainable. Are you familiar with them? No, no, I'm not. So they have 150 staff uh, in six countries, and they have a unit here as well in the, in the David Attenborough building. And they have been, one of their biggest campaigns is trying to reduce rhino horn purchasing. Hmm. And they did a big campaign in Vietnam that included none of their logos, like from their organization, nothing about WWF. Hmm. And that was very hard for them and for their donors. Because oh, right. the, I think the classic marketing message is brand, brand, brand. Yeah. They wanted to appeal to a young, ambitious businessman who didn't want to be associated with those groups. Who, who didn't necessarily want to yeah, have like a, a panda logo on his jacket exactly. or something like that. That's just not the crowd that it's he not wants cool. to, to, to hang with. Yep. So they did a brand-free campaign. They created a new brand. Okay, okay, yeah. They made yeah. it more generic. They made it more like... Yeah. Yeah. This is how you get super generic corporate stuff, right? It's like they, people are trying to yeah. appeal to the largest possible group of people. Right. So they say, well, let's just be so generic and bland that nobody could possibly have any feelings about this. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's hard when you're selling, don't do something. That's their main challenge. Mm. If you're Coke, happy people smiling... Yeah. You can recognize the Coke bottle. But if your brand is don't or buy less of this or use fewer plastics, it's a challenge. I could see that, yeah. I can imagine. How what, Did the campaign work well? Did they talk much about that? Um, it seems to be working. It's hard to measure illegal trade. Yeah. Um, and there's era effects as well. So there's, I think use was increasing already, though they may have blunted the increase. Okay, yeah, because you... So that's hard. You don't know if it was going to go up or go down. Yeah. So you're not really sure what not, the background. It's not really designed as a study. No. Yep. 
you can't do a controlled experiment or anything, you know, because you, you don't have to... I guess you can compare different places where you try. Yeah, it could be done. You know, um, and you could yeah. control for the differences between the different regions and things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's very challenging work. I bet so. Yeah, so so you're in the... Your, your building, your office is located in the mathematics department. Yes, I'm in maths. Yeah, I have a dual yeah. appointment in maths and in psychology. Okay, cool. And that's your background in psychology? Is right. It, you know, yeah. My PhD is in social psychology, and I worked for two years as a faculty member at a small uh, liberal arts university in, in upstate New York near yeah. Canada. Which one? Hamilton College. Hamilton? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Very special place. Uh, only 1,800 undergraduate students, no postgrads, no postdocs. Uh, and I enjoyed the two years there, a heavy teaching position, and now I'm doing a more research-oriented position. Yeah. And you said it was kind of isolated, right? I think I remember we yeah, chatted about the community this before is, a little bit. The community is very isolated. It's, it's a small community. Um, I was living in a village of maybe uh, 2,000 people. Yeah. And that, and that can be very lovely. It's it was certainly easier to pay the rent there than it is here. <laughs> That's for sure. Oh my God! Yeah, we're really well connected here to the rest of the world, but it costs us. <laughs> there's there's a big uh, price increase. Yeah, that's right. So it's, yeah, it's, it's neat being in those um, smaller universities that are kind of or in colleges that are they have their own culture and they're kind of you know something distinct and out out by themselves and yeah. So that was a good time. What were you teaching out there? What kind of classes? Yeah, I taught a wide range of classes. So from intro to psychology to health psychology, which is all about mind-body relationships, how does stress lead to cardiovascular outcomes. Um, placebo effect is one of the favorite topics in that for students. They love hearing about how treatments that have no active component let's say homeopathy or something, um, the, the expectations and the, the way that the provider acts and the way you perceive them can affect the <clears throat> outcome of your treatment. The provider meaning like your doctor or yeah. whoever's prescribing. So if your doctor is very confident and you believe that they can do it, that's going to strengthen the placebo effect. Fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, and your uh, yeah. body goes, well, I guess this is working, so let's just go ahead and act like it's, it's working. Yeah, we really don't know a lot about the mechanisms of how those work, but just broadly speaking, that the mind and the body are deeply connected in some, in some interesting ways. Yeah, and it's, um, but one of the neat things is, I mean, if the placebo effect works, then it's still, like your headache still goes away. Exactly. You know, it still does the thing you want it to do. Exactly. So there's sort of two telos. One, one is... Well, just the clinical outcome you're trying to achieve the outcome, and the other is what is true about the world and causation. Yeah. And so you just don't. <laughs> yeah, we just have to not confuse them. If you just want your headache to go away, then the placebo effect is unmitigated benefit. It's great. <laughs> it works super well. Um, and then there's the nocebo effect also. And the nocebo. Right? Yeah. I'm yeah. glad you know about yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I've heard the term anyway. Can well, you can have the negative that? expectancies. So if you um, if you expect a certain drug to give you bad side effects, you can. You can get them. You can get. They can show up, even if you didn't uh, receive an active component. So if you take some medicine and you look on the package after you've taken it, let's say, and you, you read, oh, may cause nausea, yeah. dizziness. Oh, I am feeling a bit nauseous. Yes. I am feeling a little dizzy. You know what? Yeah, that's that. That's why it's dangerous to go on WebMD, right? That's the similar. <laughs> right, right, right. You start reading symptoms. The auto diagnosis. Yeah. I have a very rare form of cancer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. 
because yeah, it's it's difficult ethically because you certainly have to disclose to people what might happen to them so that they can make informed decisions about their potential harms and benefits. But then they, you can get sent down these weird paths as well. Yeah, I remember um, when I was a kid. Uh, speaking of Web and D, this this is uh, I'm, I'm going somewhere with this eventually. I'll I'll get there. Um, with Web and MD, I was a kid and. You know, the internet had first just uh, shown up on the scene and had gotten big, and we had finally gotten the internet in our house. Um, and I managed to freak myself out on WebMD about something. I don't remember what it was, but I just had some symptoms, and I read on WebMD. And, and my mom actually got really, uh, she got kind of irritated with me, and she's like, you can't just go online and read a bunch of symptoms. You need an expert to help you with this. You need an expert to help you navigate the, the evidence that's in front of you you know, both on the website and your symptoms. And that kind of stuck with me, and, and it really it gets me thinking about um, you know, these days, I think this is one of the big challenges that's emerged with the Internet, right, is that the Internet now allows, you know, people to talk uh, together, which is great. It allows these smaller communities to form and to communicate with each other, which in a lot of cases that's really good. But as we've seen, you can also get these echo chambers where people are just reinforcing their ideas without critically examining them and without really subjecting those ideas to, to scrutiny. And you don't necessarily have any experts or expert opinion in the mix. You know, a lot of these communities, these small echo chambers, just kind of shrug experts so they brand them as, you know, political operatives that can be ignored, um, possibly because they are associated with a brand that people don't want to be associated with. It, it's kind of, it ties into everything. <laughs> it ties into a it lot does. of stuff, you know, yeah. It is a, a, a a reduction in the role of experts in the in the public conversation and that has negatives like you were just describing and it has positives in that it it allows a diverse set of voices to participate in the public debate so i think minorities whether political ethnic or otherwise have a better opportunity to be represented in the modern anyone can tweet world but we we it does there is some polluting of the space if you come at it as I imagine you do from an empirical background that mm -hmm. is you want the statements to be founded in logic and evidence <laughs> then then no we're moving away from that in, yeah. a, in a way yeah. that is hard right that is hard to see because I think I found myself getting uh, mad at uh, friends of friends on Facebook not for saying stuff I disagree with I'm fine if somebody disagrees with me that doesn't that doesn't bother me but it does really bother me when somebody just makes a flat-out, completely false statement that you know is, is just not consistent with reality. Then that bothers me. Yeah. I, I can't. That's much harder for me to like calm down about than. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and and with uh, the anyone can publish information, it's easier for those people to point to resources or websites that support those arguments, even when they're against the general consensus. Yeah, that's right. It, like anybody can put up a website and make yeah. it look legitimate. Um, so uh, you, people can point to those and say, "No, no, I found a website where somebody wrote down this thing that I agree with," and like you said, it's totally untethered from reality. It it's can be. Yeah. Can be totally disconnected yeah. from reality. And that's. I so, have a very you know, professional-looking website, I think, and think? Uh, and I did it myself. It's trivial. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. No, that's right. It's really easy, and you can even make a lot of money doing it. I mean, a lot of the mm. folks who. Um, you know, participated in uh, kind of uh, blasting the internet with uh, nonsense. You know, they, they did it because they wanted 
people to click on their website. They wanted the, the ad revenue from people you know, coming and visiting their website. And uh, there are some, I can't, I can't remember the specific person's name, and, but uh, that was a big thing, especially during the last you know, presidential campaign and during the Brexit campaign was there were people who, yeah. they made that their part of how they made money. You know, they just made Well, this. you might be talking <laughs> about Alex Jones and, and uh, Breitbart uh, and those sorts of organizations. It's rampant what, misinformation uh, and then ad revenue. Yeah, yeah, that's part mm-hmm. of it, right? Yeah, they want to make money and they want your clicks. They want your eyeballs. You know, they don't... They that's don't, where money is know. on the internet now, attention. Yeah. 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 Fascinating. So they'll say things to kind of, uh, in, in those echo chambers, to get people to visit their sites because they, they know how to make people mad, right? They know how to get people to react. They know what kind of headlines will provoke a response. So they publish those headlines, people click on them, and they get the they get the ad revenue. And they exactly make, they right. Make money. It's kind of maddening. It's kind of like, if, if you think about it too much, it can kind of drive you drive you crazy. And you're like, what are we doing? Where are we, yeah. where, where are we headed with this? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we just came down from the trees. We don't know what we're doing. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and the internet's so new. You know, culturally, it's brand new. We have no idea what to do with it. Sure. So there's going to be, I guess, a steep learning curve. That we have to figure out how to handle it. Um, I mean, I'm I'm optimistic to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, for me, I can be um, I can be really optimistic about like I think we'll get it. I think we'll figure it out. I have no idea what things are going to look like between now and when we figure it out, but yeah, I, th- I think we'll get there. I think we'll learn over time. Um, yeah, so you, uh, what are you working on these days? You transitioned into this research role, and uh, you, yeah. do you want to talk about that paper that just came out, for example? If that was just yeah, which, thing. which paper? The paper about, um, so you, the you were a co-author, one? yeah, you were a co-author on this uh, paper about uh, looking at the AGU fall meeting sure. and looking at... Uh, at the number of talks, number of invited talks, and uh, or it was talks versus posters, right? There were a number yeah. of different analyses. Yeah, this yeah, yeah. this may be of interest to the listeners. Yeah, so Heather Ford, who's a who does ocean sedimentology in the paleo um, era, um, uh, she is a postdoc here currently. I think she's moving into a faculty position. She invited me to join her on a project where we analyzed the AGU data from 2014 to 2016. And we have 60,000 rows of who applied to either give a poster or asked if they could give a talk. Mm-hmm. And we also have who was invited to give a talk separate from their application. And we have the gender and some other demography of those individuals. Critically, we also have the gender of who decided whether they get a talk or not. We had a couple questions about this data, um, but what's so unique about this from my perspective, I'm, as a psychologist, I usually collect uh, some sample, let's say some 1,000 people, and then I try and extrapolate to a population from the sample using inferential statistics and say, it's very unlikely that group A is this different from group B unless they're really different in the population. Yeah, That's basically yeah. what I'm doing all general linear model. But in this case, we didn't really need inferential statistics because we had the entire data set. Right. We have every single row from those three years. So we can just say descriptively, this is true of that group. This is a larger number than that one. And that was very unique for me. I'm, I'm usually not in that position. You knew everything that you needed to know to address the to, to at least we, ask the, you, you had a well-posed question and you had the right yeah. data. To Assuming that you've measured these variables well, the gender of the people, whether they gave talks, if you assume that those are, are faithful measures, then, um, or you can test that, 
then you can speak with near total confidence about the years 2014 to 16. Yeah. If you want to infer to future years or past yeah. years, then you're back to inferential. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, so what we showed was, okay, overall, women are a minority in AGU. They're maybe 30% of the mm. uh, people who are in the database of applying to give talks or posters. And that differs by career stage. There's more, proportionately more women in early stages, for example, as students. And we see that in, in, across all fields. Women are getting degrees more and, and earning higher notes across STEM. Um, but what we wanted to ask was whether women have uh, an equal chance of getting a talk if they're applying for it. So do they ask to get a talk in the same numbers? And when they ask for a talk, do they get it at the same proportion of time that men would get it? So it's not whether you end up with the same amount of men and women. You don't at all because there's may, way fewer women. Mm. Um, but we were looking for a bias in the outcomes. And it's a mixed picture. It actually wasn't as negative as I was expecting. There is some bias against women, um, and they, their outcomes aren't as good as we, we would expect. Um, but it depends on the career stage. And it, the key effect is that men, when men are deciding whether the person gets a, a, a talk or a poster and they can't see the uh, demographics of the applicant, then they disproportionately invite men to give hmm. uh, invited talks, for example. Right. So if you're a man and you're running a panel, then you invite men more than the 70% of the men from the population. We also analyze this based on the different groups within AGU because there's a bunch of different fields and, and this bias differs within the fields, as you would expect. Strangely, though, that bias didn't correlate to the proportion of women within each of those fields. So that's not the clear explanation there. But the, yeah, the paper's in Nature Communications. It's open access, yeah. so anyone can go check it out. And we have been overwhelmed at the public interest. <laughs> it's been a, like a, a big conversation. Yeah, no, that's 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 right, because um, oh, my train of thought just stopped abruptly there for some reason. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know, something, I just hit a, hit a, hit a wall. Train yeah, that's thought, all right. Train of thought derailed. That's, that happens, it yeah. It does happen, yeah. Um, so I know you know you mentioned earlier that you're more, um, you know, you do basic theory. So you don't necessarily, I guess, the natural question to ask is like, oh, okay, now that we're aware of that, what's the response? You know, how do you? I guess it's just up to you know individual people and maybe the organization yeah. as a whole to somehow you know to, to monitor that and kind of be aware of that and to try to adjust um, you know behavior when you're selecting your um, talks versus posters if you're a session convener. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I, th I think that when you look at STEM and, and women representation and uh, you ask yourself, why are there so many women at the early training stages and so few at the later training stages? There's a few explanations for that. And we're hearing different kinds of explanations that run the gamut. Um, when I'm on Twitter and people are talking to me, they say things that range all the way from, well, the women's work is lower quality, that's why they're not uh, moving mm. through the career stages, Yikes. to other explanations like, this is a hostile climate to women, mm. they're not being supported, they're being actively uh, um, discriminated against for opportunities for speaking and, or other things. And those two lead to very different interventions within the field about what we should do. But if we show, for example, that men disproportionately invite other men, 
Um, then we should probably monitor and think about maybe including more proportionately more women making those decisions until we can achieve a more equitable outcome. Or we could do uh, more opportunities for blind review it, in journals, in, in conference um, uh, presentations. So I, I think one of the key things to come out of the psychology of bias and discrimination, which isn't my area, but I, I have more training in it uh, than most people who are doing the physical sciences, yeah. would be to say, simply being aware of these biases is not sufficient to adjust and correct for them. So I strongly support double and triple blind uh, peer review, for example, because if we know that the ethnicity or the gender association with someone's name can bias our reaction to the material, then we should just not have it there. Is triple where the editor also doesn't exactly. know what's going on? Okay, exactly. yeah, triple's yeah. the editor. Hmm. So in the, well, I lived in Spain for a year in 2002, 2003. And uh, it was my second time abroad, actually, um, living abroad. Uh, I'm from California. And one thing that I noticed when I was there, it was fascinating, is if you're applying for a job at, at that time in Spain, you do your resume, you put your name at the top, of course, and you also staple a picture of yourself a to picture. the application. Yeah. But that is an invitation <laughs> for terrible bias. It is, yeah. Yeah. I think they, I don't know if they still do they it. They don't but do it anymore. They used to do it in Germany also. I think we're know. moving away from that. But even in, <laughs> if you do this, uh, the research on callbacks for job applications, simply leaving off the name can reduce bias as well because names are very informative. Yeah. If you strip, because the name is yeah. not relevant. You know, it's the, actually yeah. not relevant. <laughs> yeah. and, and the key is that the manager could have totally egalitarian attitudes about inclusivity, about uh, equal rights for all groups, but still exhibit these kinds of biases because it's a natural part of how our brain thinks about groups. It's just, it's fundamental. It's very difficult to get around. Yeah. And when you mentioned the groups part, there's another, I want to cycle back to, um, what do we want to keep going with that? I can't decide. There's too many, <laughs> too many possible, that's one of the, Oh, yeah, I think we should just add like, more you know, balls in the air. Yeah, uh, you'll, yeah, yeah. I'll just yeah. briefly say, yeah. as <laughs> yeah, <it's laughs> my more, main more. job here is actually working for the Winton Center for Risk and Evidence Communication. Oh, right, okay. And what we're doing is trying to take quantitative evidence um, in four different fields and express it in ways that are better uh, understood. It's basically just comprehension. So a lot yeah. of the presenting of information to people is done as a kind of a marketing. We're trying to persuade them to have different beliefs. Hey, by the way, climate change is real, it's yeah. being caused. You should believe that. Or it is trying to change behavior, like please fly less. Flying is super harmful to uh, climate change. No. But actually what the center does, we don't work directly on, on public issues. What we do is work on the question of how do you represent information in a way that it can be understood. And then we can help um, other groups, uh, media, government units, quangos, NGOs, communicate their own evidence in ways so that policymakers and citizens can use their own values and beliefs to do whatever they want with that information. This is, this is a very unique perspective for me because I used to work more on persuasion. You should do health behaviors, persuasion, you should do pro-environmental behaviors. And now in this role, we just work on uh, comprehension. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. That, mm -hmm. that makes sense. Yeah. If you um, if you don't mind, I think one of what I want to do 
I think I want to present a kind of situation as I see it in my head, and then you feel free to kind of chime in and to make adjustments to that and to give, give me feedback on that. Sure, sounds um, great. Yeah, so and I'll be a little bit selfish about it, and I'll tell you my kind of story and how I approach climate science. Yeah, I'd love and to hear that. Then you know, if you can, feel free to kind of comment along the way, basically. Um, so, I was working a few years ago. I was working as an instructor of physics and astronomy in a small university in Georgia, and this opportunity came up to teach an environmental physics course, and uh, so I I looked at it and. Uh, I got really interested in teaching that kind of course because I really wasn't that familiar with it. And I think, well, let me say it this way. I had gotten really tired of all of the kind of noise in the media about climate change. You know, you kind of hear people trying to communicate uh, climate and you hear people who are, you know, railing against the idea that, you know, humans are contributing to climate change. and. I got a bit fed up with just hearing that noise and hearing that rattling, and I thought, I want to dig into this. I want to look at the science. I want to figure it out. Um, I don't want to say figure it out for myself, but I wanted to try to digest the real scientific information that was out there, and teaching that course was a great opportunity to do so. So over that summer, I bought a whole bunch of textbooks and read them and digested them uh, and uh, prepared the course to teach that, that autumn and taught it for a year. and. It was a really, it was a really interesting experience because I guess my intuition going into the process, um, I'm very, I'm very optimistic about science as an enterprise, as a thing that is happening. Like I, I believe that the peer review system works pretty well overall, and that science is, uh, you know, a positive force. And it's uh, force is a weird word to use, but it's um, that it's something that's been uh, enormously beneficial to you know humanity over the past few centuries and I know you could you could debate the nuances of that and that's fine I'm happy with that but I'm happy to, to talk about those nuances but um, so and then I, I decided to just go off to grad school to study the field further so I went and started working on a PhD in atmospheric science and oceanography to really dig into it and when I got into the fields uh, all I saw you know I see a bunch of scientists doing their thing, being scientists, you know, I didn't see, haven't uncovered anybody, you know, working secretly, you know, <laughs> behind the scenes to, the, the to try to fool cabal. people, and, yeah. the, you know, that's, uh, just, I've seen zero evidence of that, right, I just, uh, I don't, I don't know how that comes across, you know, since I'm a scientist working in the field now, but that, that, I came from outside of the field and entered into it, and I just, and I wasn't surprised. It was kind of kind of comforting uh, and kind of you know reassuring that that's that's indeed what was was waiting on me. So that got me interested in this question of like, well, where is the noise coming from? Like, where is the where is all the negativity coming from? Where is the the noise coming from? And um, it's complicated, right? There are lots of different possible sources of that noise, and I'm not necessarily being super articulate about it right this second. But um, one of the 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 books I just finished recently, and this would have been a much faster way to get into this topic, was just to, add, to mention this book. So I finally finished this um, the Merchants of Doubt book by oh, yeah. Naomi Oreskes, and yeah. it's uh, it's really, it's it's uh, it's hard to fully digest because it's it's uh, she presents a lot of evidence for you know, for a 
a lot of evidence that a small number of scientists, you know, over the past several decades have purposefully injected confusion into the public scientific conversation about uh, you know, ozone depletion, about climate change, yes. uh, about uh, lead poisoning, about any, any environmental issue that looked like it was uh, potentially going to brush up against the subject of regulation. And um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a really fascinating book to read. It's also hard to read because it's such a dark, it's kind of a dark it's picture. very dark. Yeah. It's, very dark. it's a good book. I recommend it as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, the, the takeaway for me, you know, uh, Oreskes and her co-author, Conway, I think? I've forgotten his name. I'm sorry. I can't, I'll, I'll look it up afterwards. Um, so uh, their, their take-home was that for these individuals, for these uh, physicists who started these disinformation campaigns, uh, they grew up during the Cold War era, right? And to them, the, the world was very kind of, you know, capitalism versus communism. That's how they saw everything. And they were kind of staunch defenders of uh, nearly unregulated capitalism, you know? And so they, they felt that so strongly that, that that was like their core value and their group that they identified with. So, you know, it, it um, that's where kind of their, the, she posits anyway, that's that's what motivated them. That's what pushed them to, you know, wage this disinformation campaign. I think that's you know, plausible. I think it's useful as a story and a general narrative. I think it's also key to just remember that people are not always following a core narrative that mm -hmm. makes coherent sense across all their actions. Yeah. People do things that are deeply inconsistent with their most deeply held values. And so the vision of us as a thoughtful beliefs and then behaviors machine is really not how people behave um, and specifically with politics it's tempting for the uh, for the highly educated to imagine that everyone is putting as much thought and effort into consistency and coherence as they are and they're really not in many cases and that's not a slur it's just not the life they're living. It's not their priority. It's not what they've been trained to do. And it's, and so if we look for a profound consistency, you're often not going to find it. Yeah. And there's some very interesting work in political science suggesting that most people don't really have coherent political uh, opinions about policies in the way that we think that they might. They're instead just following elite cues a lot of the time, which is a very rational and appropriate way to live if you don't want to think about the complexities of Brexit uh, across different markets, across different outcomes. How's, you know, you we, can't, right? You don't have access to all that and, information. And it would be very difficult know. to do so across all issues all the time. Yeah. So we, we generally just follow our group cues. That's fascinating, right? And that gets me to, we talked briefly about this last time we met, but this book, um, the, uh, the the Righteous Mind. Ah, Jonathan yeah. Haidt. Jonathan Haidt, yeah. This is, I've read that book a couple of times. It's I love really, this book. It's really... Uh, yeah. He really is a hero for me. I, he <laughs> He's great. He has a he has an ability to transcend some of the traditional dominant ideologies within academia. For example, a, a, a liberal, or in, in the American sense of that word, progressive... Yeah vision of how society should be organized, he, he does a very nice job explaining a, a more fundamental tension between loving institutions, which is traditional conservatism, and wanting to protect them, and being interested in innovating and protecting um, 
vulnerable groups, just right. sort of more of the leftist. Uh, yeah, I love I love that word. And he has these three um, three metaphors, right? And the uh, I'm going to try to summarize them, and you jump in, and sure. I'm probably going to get them a little bit wrong. But I love um, the first one is about the elephant and the writer, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. So he says, imagine there's an elephant, and this elephant represents your um, kind of uh, instincts, your your really quick, rapid brain instincts. Uh, which are much, much faster than your kind of rational thought. And all the elephant can do is go towards something or away from something, or stay where it is, I guess. But that's all it can do. It can either go towards something because it wants to go to it, or it can run away from something because it's afraid. It's very reactive, more emotional. Yeah. Yeah. Is it right to say that that's your kind of, um, that's the part of your brain that in an evolutionary sense showed up earlier? Is that kind of the, you know, to be super colloquial, like your lizard brain, <laughs> like the really early... Yeah, I mean, when we say part, I wouldn't want to be too spatial about okay, it yeah. in the brain. But uh, yes, I would say that well, the way we think about the consciousness of other creatures that are uh, evolved earlier in the chain, like lizards and stuff, is that they are mostly elephant thinking. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Towards a way, this is good, this is bad. This and even bacteria show food. that sort of behavior. So it's not oh, yeah? It's not totally... Well, they go towards nutrients and away from bad gradients. Yeah. and So it's not That's really good. clear what... Um, they certainly don't have a lizard brain right? Um, yeah. but yes I would say that that seems to be a fundamental way the organisms operate so that's the elephant and on top of the elephant is the rider is somebody riding the elephant and the rider's job is to um, after the elephant has already made its decision is to explain why the elephant is doing <laughs> what the elephant is doing right? <laughs> is to come up with a complex yeah. explanation for like oh well this is why we're going towards this and uh, so that's our cognitive processing that's our language that's our ability to come up with narratives and stories like we you know we just used that that term a second ago um so the the writer if the elephant is going towards the the water you know the writer can come up with a story and our writers have gotten very good at coming up with stories and they can come up with, they can justify anything they can rationalize anything they can make anything almost sound reasonable <laughs> if yeah. you don't take yeah. So I think the, the naive view that we have looking out from behind our eyes, if there's any self there at all, <laughs> um, the naive view is that the writer is like a general, controlling the forces, directing, mm. and there's some of that. You can see things on the horizon and lean, try and lean the elephant one way or the other. Mm, okay. But a lot of the time, we're not a general and we're not a scientist. We're more like a press secretary explaining our behavior to ourselves and to other people. And there's some suggestion that that was critical to our survival, that the that there's huge survival benefit in being able to spin stories uh, about appropriate behavior and coalitions, and, and, and that wouldn't necessarily be predicated on there being any moral core to what you're doing. It would just be the necessity of explaining to others in a way mm. that they feel that they want to include you in their group. Right, you want to be in a group, and well, it was necessary. Was, yeah. yeah, yeah. Being alone in the evolutionary past very dangerous. Yeah, that's right. How are you going to find food? How are you going to? Yeah. How are you going to? You sleep? get injured. No one will feed you. Yeah. Bad you, times. How are you going to sleep? You know, something's going to eat you in your sleep. You need to yeah. be surrounded by other people. So it's really, really important. Yeah. So the, and if, if I remember right, the kind of the rider is much slower than the elephant. Yeah. You know, the elephant can react quickly, and it takes the rider a while to catch up. Yeah. Whereas. So one of the takeaways of that book is he says, well, I think Hume was right. And Hume is the philosopher who had this picture that 
uh, I think the way he put it was like the passions rule. Reason you know? is the slave to the passions. Yeah, there you go. Nice. And uh, so your passions show up first, and then reason comes along and explains what you've been doing. I think yeah. generally that's true. Uh, but I do want to head off one misunderstanding here, which is that um, rational logic and emotional reactions are not separate systems. Mm. It's helpful to think of them as separate because they do have pretty different characteristics. And Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, very popular recently. Yes, that's a useful way to think about it, but I, they're not fully separate in that if, if you had reason without any emotional attachments, we would think that that would be insane. Mm -hmm. And uh, it wouldn't show any reference to the values, uh, let's say a valuing of human life that comes very intuitively viscerally to us, that is part of how we think moral and full beings should act. So... They're, they really work together. Uh, it's a unified system, but it can be useful for us to try and tease them apart. Yeah, I love that. I love that subtlety. And I love, you know, uh, people do tend to think of them as an either-or, right? It's kind of a dichotomy. But yeah, I like the idea. Like, no, no, they're a blended system. It is. Yeah, and if you look a... in the brain for a, a spatial separation of where are emotions in the brain, and we, we see some associations, but it's not. It's certainly not that you have some subsection doing only emotions, or it's not like that at all. It's how you make decisions, partly, right? You see, um, you know, you're in the grocery store and you have to pick what you want to eat, and if you didn't have any emotions or preferences you'd have a big problem on your hands because you would have to figure out how to... If you didn't have any emotions and you were only going on, yeah. I'm going to optimize my, my nutrition, Yeah, that's pretty uh, underdetermined, right? There's still so many There's no way to resolve that. Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. You, you, ha you need that emotional impulse to like, well, I like this kind of pizza or I don't like this kind of pizza. <laughs> otherwise, yeah, that's interesting. You're, otherwise, so you're just frozen. There's like a multi-criteria decision analysis and if you can't maximize all the pieces... And we use emotions to help guide us through those things. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah, and past experience, you know, I don't like onions. That helps me a lot. I can just, like, anything with onions is out. That, I love onions. That, <laughs> get out. <laughs> get out. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, but it, uh, that, that simplifies the decision-making for me, right? Yes, because yes. now I don't, anything with onions on it, I, I yeah. don't have to worry about it. You know, and to look back, um, this is why the system that makes us groupy and tribalist that resists people of different names, genders, ethnicities from us is such a useful system. It's part of a fundamental way that we use heuristics to manage an unmanageably complex world. Yeah. So it is really part of the same useful, basic way that our brain takes shortcuts to try and figure out what to do in the world. It's, it's, there's too many decisions. It's too complex. You can't. It's, you it's can't. crazy complex. Yeah. But what I what I like about this is just to observe that bias and to some extent behavioral discrimination would be expected in the system. We're not um, angels of pure thought. And so we just have to design our structures to minimize those kinds of biased outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's that's a fascinating thought. So how do we how do we do that? What's some possibilities <laughs> for like um, minimize or for uh, working against that kind of bias? Because we we want ultimately what we want. I think if I can be so bold as to posit this, um, we do want to be part of groups. That's not going to go away. We're going to want to be part. We want to want to identify. Yeah. But. There's got to be a way to identify common values, common like things that we want to exist. You yeah. know, I think for the for the vast majority of people anyway, you know, there's always going to be. I like where you're going with that. I yeah. think I think one of the ways to transcend the tribalist um, divisions 
is to identify superordinate goals. Mm -hmm. So you and I might be from very different backgrounds, but maybe we agree that educating our children is very important to us. Yeah. And that you can, you can bond around that and resist the bad outcomes. And so the superordinate goals is huge. Uh, and we see some of our most successful political leaders appealing to general goals that transcend our tribal groups. Yeah. Uh, another way is to just look at our decision-making bodies, whether it's politics or otherwise, and look to see that they're made up of diverse members. It's not that the diversity itself, it's tempting to think, okay, we need a member of Group X so that they can advocate for their group. That's not what I mean at all. We need a diverse set of members so that we don't fall into accidental groupthink uh, yeah. and uh, a narrow-minded pursuit of goals that don't meet the, 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 the true maximizing goals of the whole population. Yeah, so having a room full of people from really different backgrounds then forces you to like, okay, well, if this is going to be a coherent body, we've got to find stuff that we yeah. all agree on. And gonna be, there's going to be things where we're super different, you know, um, you, know, you, you and I would have to navigate this onion, no onion thing. If we were to have, if we were to have lunch, we didn't no find like no. Sorry. <laughs> this is war. <laughs> this is like, um, so yeah, if you're, you, you have to find you know, those common values. Like, well, we we do want a planet to live on. We want the like this is the only one. So we want a planet to live on, and we want to have our you know air be clean, and we want to have our kids and grandkids have a. A reasonable you know, environment around them and a reasonable planet. So that seems like it should be a pretty, uh, a pretty, um, not easy. Easy is not quite the right word I'm going for, but that's a clear goal. Yes, but have, even right? even you know? the way you said that sounded left and yeah, progressive to I know. me. So let me let me see I if heard I can. It too. <laughs> let me channel a little bit of height and see if I can say that in a way that sounds like it's coming from a different group. Yeah, yeah. Um, we. We have a limited amount of resources to use in our economy and to help develop a, um, our technology in a better world um, uh, with more prosperity. And because we want our children to be able to have maximal freedom uh, to start whatever businesses they want, to make the choices they want, to run their own lives in their own way, we need to uh, use these resources carefully. We plan uh, so that um, so that we can have that liberty. That's great. <laughs> it's the same story, actually. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's, uh, if we think about um, what someone's goals are, a lot of people's goals are not, in, the environmental outcome itself is not motivating to right. them. It can even be demotivating. So this is, this is some of the work that I'm most excited about um, that, that I've put out in the last year. It's about... Um, when people think that their pro-environmental behaviors are being watched by others, then they might do them more if they're like you and me and we have all these pro-environmental beliefs, but they might actually do them less, not because they are specifically anti-environmentalist, but because they just don't want to be part of the group. They don't want to carry around a tote bag that has a smiling mother goddess yeah. earth image on it. And, and some of this work... Um, I think it can help us find better superordinate goals that aren't about environmental outcomes. That as as climate change now you're the you're more of an expert on this than I am. So please correct me if I misstep at all. But one of the stories so far has been, hey, the earth is just gonna warm a lot and that's gonna be bad for us. 
And mm-hmm. people don't find this very motivating. They can't even conceive, uh, it's hard to conceive for various reasons of uh, a world that's too hot to survive in. Uh, but as we continue to see warming genuinely affecting human health uh, through ocean level rise or through areas be- having heat waves, mm-hmm. th- that story I think will connect much more easily with people. Because it's impacting people. Because it's about health. Yeah, health. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And then we can connect to uh, economic damage and. Uh, it, we, we're all worked up right now in the West about a f- relatively small amount of Syrian refugees that we should probably help yeah. and aren't really helping <laughs> enough. Anyway, yeah. but if you look at how many refugees are being resettled and then you look at what we expect by 2100 based on climate projections, mm. I mean, we're looking at a tsunami of refugees and that you don't have to care about the earth to think, well, a lot of people worry about immigration. This is a fundamental concern. We, so it's really about immigration, and it's not. It's not about the earth or about carbon dioxide per se. Yeah. So as as some countries potentially get less habitable or diff- difficult to inhabit, people will need to get out. They, yes. they won't be able to survive there. They're going to need to go somewhere else. You know, and it's going to lead to yeah mass movement of people. Yes, and, and destabilization in local governments and massive um, they don't ecological it. and health crises and. Uh, that's what I see happening. Yeah. So if it's not managed, you know, well or at all, then that can be a huge challenge for sure. Yeah. Anyway, so. as that story develops, I think it'll be easier to think about mitigating climate change as a superordinate goal that's not about um, about the earth. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I yeah, we'll we'll hope that that comes before a certain tipping point. So what? Um, yeah. So that's part of what you've been working on. On now, yeah. So I, yeah, I mentioned my work with the uh, Risk and Evidence Communication oh, Center yeah. here at the yeah. University of Cambridge. I also have another line, and this is my affiliation in psychology about how people react to pro-environmental issues. I'm especially interested in climate change; it's fascinating, and predicting what kinds of people, uh, personality, for example, um, and uh, and under what social situations people are reacting with more conservation behaviors or fewer. So we've studied small individual behaviors like conserving water at home, turning electronic devices off, uh, flying less. That's not really a small behavior. That one's quite important, actually. Yeah. Um, but lately, we've been publishing also uh, with an economist friend of mine, Ponte um, um, Busick Sontic, uh, who just is getting his PhD here in the, in the Department of Economics. Uh, His paper, which he invited me to help with, was about whether people install solar panels. So that now we have a more expensive, maybe one-off home green installation. Do we put in a gray water system or a solar panel and what sort of people are doing that and why? Um, So yeah, trying to understand the behavioral side. I think what's so... To back up a second, yeah, yeah. what's so fascinating to me about this is that we know exactly what to do to mitigate and adapt to climate change. <laughs> we know what to do, and we knew it 20 years ago. Yeah. And so we're not doing it. Put and less carbon in the atmosphere. The, boom. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot easier to, to reduce how much carbon we're putting in than to scrub out parts per million. Mm-hmm. That's Even in the best case scenario, that's going to be inefficient, difficult. Yeah. Usually expensive, yeah. I mean, we don't, we don't have a scaled-up industry to do it. And it's 
basically no way we can stay under two degrees unless we invent and then devote huge resources to that industry. Yeah. Okay, very scary. But we, uh, we, we basically have a social problem. And I, d I don't know what role psychologists will play relative to other kinds of social scientists, but we, it seems that we need to think of these systems and the technologies and whether we apply them as a question of uh, social decision-making. How, how do we make priorities as societies? How do we come to international agreements? There's uh, going to be a huge role for international relations, for example, the Paris Agreement, fascinating. Um, yeah, so I, I just would like to see less, um, okay, we just need to X, and then people will Y, <laughs> and, and more attention to the, to the difficulties and complexities and, and the, need for, um, the, need, the need for strong empirical science and understanding why people do things. Yeah. Um. How do you get, what's a good example of empirical, like how do you empirically measure, do you have a good example sure. you could share? Yeah. Sure, sure. So I think um, the, an intuitive intervention for society would be to boost beliefs. Okay, we, we need to tell mm -hmm. people there's a consensus among scientists that climate change is human cost. Yeah, which there is, that, that's there. Yeah, there absolutely that, yeah, is, yeah. overwhelming. Yeah. yeah, John Cook has done great work on mm -hmm. that. Um, and then they'll just adjust their political choices and individual behaviors to match that knowledge. That makes sense, but in practice, it actually turns out to work very little. Well, because uh, that only works if people are receptive to, if, if they trust that expert group, right? If they, okay. If they feel like that group is... Uh, There's a few know. different places you can fall off the path here. Okay. You've identified the first one. Maybe you don't even believe the message. You mm -hmm. don't want to accept the message for whatever reason, or it doesn't look trustworthy. You don't understand it. There's a lot of reasons why you might not get the message. Even if you get through all of those and you adjust your beliefs, we've taken you from a 4.5 on a 7-point scale to a 6 out of 7. You think, yeah, okay, climate, yeah, it's mm -hmm. happening. Even if that's true there may be no change in your politics or your functional behaviors. Mm. And so that is something that we would need the science to show, okay, well, where do behaviors come from? Yeah. What are these theories of behavior change? Yeah. And what they're showing is that we actually are really bad at explaining our own behavior. We know what we like. We know um, our preferences. We know our reactions to things. We know our attitudes. These are all very accurate. Mm. We're really bad at explaining our own behavior. So one of the, forget the environmental issue for a moment, across all of psychology and decision-making, one of the things that we vastly underweight is the influence of other people on our thoughts oh, and actions. Right. So I just tend to do what people around me are doing. And, and we like to think of ourselves, especially in the West, as these silos, yeah. every man is an island, uh, of independent, rational decision-making. That's yeah. not how it works. Lots of people love that idea, right? They love to think of themselves as like, well, I'm a pioneer cowboy, basically, in my own life. Right. And I... <laughs> especially Americans. And yeah. Uh, absolutely. And, and if you go to other cultures, they have a much more interdependent view of what the self is, I think... They're on to something, because we tend to do what the people around us are doing because, to loop back to that inclusion, the, the group acceptance, the safety uh, that is so, was so important to our ancestors and continues to be important to us today. That's, there's a big east-west contrast in that, right? Like in a lot of, and I'm, I'm overgeneralizing and painting with a really broad brush, but if I understand from 
I, have, I don't have any direct experience of this. This is just from reading, but like in a lot of uh, Eastern countries, like uh, China, for example, like you said, there's a much more interdependent view of like, a person's place in society. And they even, um, from, from what I understand, in the language tend to talk about the whole thing, like all of society or something larger. And they don't tend to talk as much on the, I want this and I do this and an individual kind of level. So yes. that's, that's an interesting contrast to look at. And to think yes, about, it's fascinating. Know, yeah. That's a big cultural um, spectrum. And there are other ways you can divide up cultures. Some people just call them tight versus loose about how traditional they are. Uh, this, the one you mentioned, psychologists call that um, individualism versus collectivism. Yeah. yeah, there's other ways of painting this. But what, what's to, to make it more real, if you just give someone a sheet of paper and you say, I am, please list ten things. Hmm. Oh, right. The American tends to say things like, I'm a lawyer. I'm a man. <laughs> I'm, I'm six feet tall. Yeah. I like pizza. And the people from Japan or other more collectivistic countries... Re- relatively more often mention the relationships with other people. I'm a father. Hmm. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a member of this group. And it's because of, they're much more aware of how the actions are impacting their ties with their community and with close others. Yeah, and I, I can certainly, you can kind of see how there's advantages to both approaches, right? I mean, sometimes you can get a lot out yeah. of being more independent and striking out on your own to an extent or with a smaller, yeah, smaller group. That can be... That's how you explore a new territory. <laughs> Absolutely. So this is yeah. a useful attention. And Americans are famously good at innovating in the marketplace. And yeah. it's not totally clear why, but this might be part of it. Yeah. Whereas, you know, on the other side of, in the more, um, what was the term you used? Individual versus kind of collective. You know, yeah, yeah, collectivistic. That society, there's lots, potentially, lots of support, lots of, you know, um, people to look out for you. And yes. you know, you're working towards a bigger goal. And there's possible advantages to that as well. Yes, that system can potentially be really unfair to particular individuals, right? If you step outside of the vision of what the collective kind of wants, then you could you could get some strong negative <laughs> feedback potentially. Potentially, uh, you know, you could, you could get um, ejected from the group or for for having you know behaviors or beliefs that differ from the kind of collective. That's right. You could get so that that's one possible disadvantage to that. I see where you're going um, with that, though. Yeah. It can have the great advantage of more social integration. So yeah. in the West, yeah. we yeah. have a lot of loneliness. We have a lot of uh, isolation. And in particular, uh, one social problem is that we, are, we don't integrate, respect, or live with our elders in the mm-hmm. way that many other cultures do. Yeah. We ship them off. Um, or if you thought to yourself, okay, there's a fire, who would you save, my spouse or my parent? I mean, you know, I saw a result on uh, a recent scientific result suggesting that in the West we save our spouse. Yeah. Um, but in the in the in the Asian Southeast, maybe they save their parent because wow. there's no replacing the parent. <laughs> there's there, that's a, a unique and fundamental bond. So yeah, a different relationship to our family, to our to our society. This is not my area of particular expertise, but I can recommend uh, Hee Jung Kim as a professor of psychology in the University of California, Santa Barbara, co-author of mine, and she has a strong research line in this work. Yeah. So you grew up in California, you said, right? Yeah, I grew yeah. up in Santa Cruz. Yeah. Is, uh, lovely little beachside town. Is that um, pretty far south? I, my, 
I don't remember exactly where that is. Yeah, it's actually, it's culturally in Northern California. Oh, okay. Geographically, it's about in the middle, but very few people live in what is actually Northern California, beyond the Bay Area. So, it's, I'd say uh, San Francisco is the cultural nexus uh, for the area I grew up in, whereas Mm -hmm. farther south, for example, where I did my PhD in Santa Barbara, L.A. is more of the center, cultural and economic center. yeah. Um, but people talk about Northern and Southern California, and no way, hogwash. The key difference culturally <laughs> in California is the coastal, educated, rich, elite, white, and then the inland, agricultural, uh, more conservative, uh, more immigrant uh, really? groups. So the key political difference is, is coast and not coast. Wow. Mm. Okay, yeah. So where you grew up, was it more coastal or more... I grew up in an extremely insulated, uh, hyper-white, rich uh, coastal town. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And um, what what did your folks do? Oh, my dad was a lawyer. He was working in in family court and also juvenile court, and he worked as a judge for a while. Um, And my mom was an elementary school teacher and also did a lot of um, natural alternative medicine therapies. Yeah. Yeah, and she and I have, uh, I benefit a lot from learning about non-Western ways to approach medicine. I also benefited from starting to develop my own opinions about empirical evidence and uh, and what sort of treatments we should pay for with Medicare oh, and yeah. those sorts of things. Is that, so that, both from your mom and your dad, a bit of that? My mom is the stronger character, yeah. I would say, so okay. we okay. had a little more clashing and, uh, and, mm. and mutual growth, and my dad a, a nice, stable figure. Um, gro- that's a great way to put that, mutual growth. That's, <laughs> that's, really, that's really respective of like what you both went through. Oh. Like, no, this is something we did together, and we, we, got, we improved Thank together. You, yeah. Got, yeah. She just visited last week. We had a lovely time to, coming around Cambridge. Yeah. Oh, great. And the, the weather was all right, wasn't it? Yeah, last, it was last fine. week. Yeah. Well, it rained rain a bit, but that's normal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, did you go punting? And we didn't the... go punting. We did some of the great houses and went to see an even song, a choral concert at um, King's College Chapel and that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. So she had a good time. It was yeah. A nice, nice time. visit. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah, it's nice to have. It's nice when your folks can come over and see. See the place and see it's where you're living. Have, uh, have your uh, folks visited? My, mine haven't. My wife's folks have. My in-laws mm-hmm. have been over, and they stayed for a couple of, of weeks. Did and, they stay with um, you? They did actually. Yeah, which our flat is way too small for that. We had <laughs> we had no business because you have a kid as well, so yeah. that could be tough. Yeah, we had no business trying to cram two extra adults into our <laughs> into our flat. We it worked though. We got we we got through it. Well done. It worked out okay. Um, yeah, it was it was a couple summers ago and. Uh, I think they were they enjoyed escaping the South Georgia heat and humidity. I think they sure because the summers here, uh, honestly, they're really good. They're like you they're know mild. Adapted. Yeah, yeah. well, we're so mild, far north yeah. it doesn't get that hot. Yeah, that's right. It's super mild. Um, there's it's not that much moisture in the air. You know, it's not super humid, uh, so it's just lovely uh, compared to the brutality of South Georgia. So know, I, I did a backpacking humidity. trip in South Georgia once. Did you? Yeah. In the, I think it was. Mid-April, Mid-April, which is already brutally hot for backpacking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, it's very pretty, but I didn't enjoy it per se because of the heat and humidity, and it just—it was like, just very difficult for me to sleep. Actually, oh yeah, yeah. So there were enough bugs so that you had to stay covered. Oh no! But then you being covered was sticky, yeah. sweaty, hot. Yeah, that was the problem. Yeah, you stay inside, and you 
put up bug screens, right? You have screens sure. on your sure. on your windows so that you can. But they know how to do it down there. Yeah, but when you're backpacking, it's a little different. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. No, it's um, it's weird because, uh, you know, sometimes when folks move down to the south from up north, it takes them a little bit of time to adjust and to realize, like, no, no, it's the opposite. You go out in the winter. You can go outside in the winter and go, you know, play. But in the summer, you stay inside exactly. and isolate yourself. It's the opposite from what you might do, you know, in other yeah, parts of the country. Yeah, So you have to adjust your expectations. I for, suppose that's you know. the same in the southwest, in the in the deserty regions. Is the summer becomes unbearably hot, and then in the winter you can do things. I think so, right? It it is cliche what people say about it because I lived in Colorado for a couple of years, and oh, it's yeah. it is cliche what people say about it being a dry heat, but there is some truth to it, right? There's there's not as much humidity in the air, so it can still be really hot over there, but it can be more tolerable than having this blanket of wet humidity sitting on top of you. Yes, yeah. I absolutely felt that. Um, and I, I gave a talk, I was, excuse me, <coughs> I was invited to give a talk a couple of years ago in South Korea at Yonsei mm. University, yeah. wonderful opportunity to travel, and mm. uh, and it was brutally humid was and that? hot, and I, I really had trouble with it, yeah, so I, I know what you're saying. I didn't grow up in that kind of uh, heat, but... It's a bit cooler on the on the coast there oh, where you, you are, know, you know, coastal so. California is just very Mediterranean, it's... It's hard to live anywhere else afterwards. <laughs> the, I remember the first time uh, I visited Southern California. The uh, first time I, it was um, it was like October, right? So it was in other parts of the country. It was starting to get you know a bit cooler, and I got off the plane and we were there for a few minutes. And it didn't take long. But I was like, oh, I get it. I see it. <laughs> I see why people like living here. Yeah. Just the weather was fine. You know, it was not too hot. Not too, yeah. You know, it's and like nice. I think most places have those pockets mm. in the year it's two weeks here lovely two weeks in the spring lovely yeah but yeah in santa barbara it's like i don't know 300 weeks are that way <laughs> so yeah it's it is lovely yeah so um when did you first kind of start thinking about psychology as a possible direction oh you know? oh okay yeah. let's go back really far i wanted to be a novelist when i was little i yeah. loved reading fiction books oh cool yeah. yeah and i was super into that and then um when did, I, you, did you do any as a kid? Did you like? Yeah, I wrote little. Yeah, I wrote little fantasy books. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You still have them lying around. Somewhere. I do. Right. Yeah, they're terrible. Um, <laughs> well, of course. I mean, that's fine. That's, sure, that's expected. That's no, I remember right. enjoying that a lot. And and then um, when I was in university, I, the U.S. has a very broad curriculum. Yes. You know, much less specialized than Europe, as as you know. And. And I went to a particularly broad curriculum school, Reed College in Portland, Oregon. So I was having a, uh, a grounding in philosophy, humanities, um, music, literature, yeah. and I eventually went into science, but I actually started as a music major. I played guitar and piano and sang and was, was very interested in music and really enjoyed it. And I started doing music theory, and then I, I just really was terrible at it. I mean, 18th century <laughs> counterpoint and composing motets oh that follow all the rules. Yeah. I was bad at it, and I didn't really enjoy it. And so when you have zero for two, you, you need to switch. And I, I made a switch into science, which I found easier. Yeah. I was tempted by the I was tempted by music when I was first in university. Oh, I was trying well. to pick what I wanted, but the music department was totally intimidating to me. Mm. It was a very they they took themselves super seriously, and you mm. had to have like an audition, and you had to be like actually good to get in. Wow. And so it just their attitude was very very exclusive. They're okay. very like you know, um, 
and that, that just scared, that put me off. I just, you know. Interesting, yeah. Th- but they must get a lot of folks, I guess, approaching the field who, you know, maybe are like, I was okay. Like, I can play, you know, guitar and bass and stuff, and I, I can, you know, do some, some basic singing and stuff. And I, I'm not, like, terrible, but they, uh, it's almost like they're actively trying to scare people away. Interesting. Was wow, your, they were very inclusive and yeah. welcoming in my school. Oh, okay. Not like that. That's but totally I just found right? a, a huge disconnect between my coursework what I loved about music mm. they met almost not at all There's so I just no, kept I no kept playing music and stopped studying it no overlap between those sets There's not no, in the way no. that we were working on it yeah um, the intersection is a null set of that yeah I'm sure it can be done or I just maybe was the wrong student at the wrong time or whatever anyway I switched yeah, into yeah. I, I loved psychology it was I was taking intro to psychology I, and I said such good professors stunningly good and they just conveyed their passion for the topic it connected to my life in so many ways i was curious how do senses work or uh what do we what do we see when we think about other people why do we do things yeah it was just it was it was great for me i'm always interested in people to learn that there was an empirical way to study it i just didn't know that and then and then uh, to Maybe specific to that department, but I saw them being friendly with each other. Oh, the professors yeah. were not in competition with each other. They were over at each other's houses. They were laughing with each other in the hallways, and I, I thought, those are my people. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. So that's uh, that's where I went. And then I worked for a while um, in a hospital uh, doing clinical research. I wasn't really sure what... I thought I wanted to go to grad school, took the GRE, but then I didn't apply. I didn't know what kind of program to go into. I spent some time a bit lost, um, becoming a competitive Scrabble player. Yeah, competitive Scrabble. <laughs> Played in some tournaments. Say more about that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm a mediocre competitive Scrabble player, uh, and I, you know, you learn all the two-letter words, you learn all the three-letter words, you start working on the five thousand four-letter words, and you think, what am I doing with my life? You could put that in your email signature. Uh, Medio- yeah. mediocre competitive Scrabble. Player. <laughs> Here's my ranking. No, I don't know, and. I eventually I, I played in one tournament in Portland where I it was just so stressful. I went ten and ten in Division Four, so I won ten games. I lost ten games. And Division Four, there are divisions. Oh there yes, like and four is the worst. Uh, <laughs> and and it was so stressful. And in my final game, which I had the nine wins and ten losses, I just wanted to win this game. Yeah. And a woman had flown out from New York, and it was a very tight game. And I was just thirty or forty points behind the whole time. And in my final. I had about two and a half minutes on the clock because it's timed. It's all very serious, tracking tiles. And I just was looking for that one play that would get me a ton of points. And I was looking, and then I'm down to two minutes. I'm down to one minute. I'm down to 30 seconds. I mean, I was just about to lose. I saw the play. You know, stress melted away from me. Uh, I played the play. I had a, I got a bazillion points. I looked across the table, and she was devastated. Oh, she had just lost, suddenly lost the final game in her tournament. And I thought, I, what am I doing with this? Like, I need to work on things where we both win when I win. That's, uh, that's a great story. So that you, you learned something about yourself in that moment. I did. I just, like, I, just, I was, destroying you was not fun. Yeah. Yeah. So then I just, I haven't played it in tournaments since. That makes a lot of sense to me because I think I, I can relate to that because uh, I think, I think I know for, for me what it is anyway, like. I feel like I'm pretty ambitious and like I want to do stuff and accomplish stuff, but I hate the thought of putting somebody else down or squashing somebody else. That's just not, that doesn't 
make me happy. I don't like that. Dan the Conqueror. You know? No, I don't. Like <laughs> I don't like. Well, I want to. I want to conquer, but only if it is just kind of helpful. Uh-huh. <laughs> only if it's kind of a the constructive thing, conqueror. You know? A constructive conqueror. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But it sounds like that's yeah. that's how you felt as well. You. Yeah, like, was, you know. It's hard. I mean, in your twenties, you're trying to build yourself and to develop your goals. And yeah, I was I was developing them at that time. And then I, uh, I I applied to grad schools in social psychology eventually, and ended up moving away from the clinical work where I began publishing towards more social work about uh, what motivates people and and how they think about themselves and other groups. Yeah, yeah. and that's eventually led you to the teaching position, and then yeah, that's right. Yeah. And and it was only midway through my PhD that I started realizing the environment. I could work on environmental stuff because no one around me was doing that. Mm. But I had friends in, in the Bren School of Environmental Science and Management and I credit them 100% with welcoming me to think about how my training applied to their issues. Was that Hamilton? No, this or... is at Santa Barbara actually. Oh, okay. So in, my, in the later years of my PhD, I started giving talks about climate change, connecting with those people, starting to try and publish in that area. It takes a while to switch topics. Yeah, it does. That's why I'm working on environment now, because they were there to help guide me to say, um, no, actually, this training is very useful. We need to know how to talk about groups to, to think about individual behavior. Mm-hmm. You can do all the life cycle analysis you want about recycling, but how do you get people to understand or respond to that information? Mm-hmm. That's a very social science question. That's different, yeah. And so that led you... Here to Cambridge. That led me here, yeah. and uh, and who knows where next? Because uh, it's very long training these days in academia. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and people end up hopping around quite a bit. I've been hopping. You know, you've been hopping. We'll, sure. Uh, we'll we'll find some place eventually. Something. Will, I hope so. Something will stick. Yeah. <laughs> well, good. Do you want to? How do you feel? Do you want to talk about anything else? Is there some? No, no. I'm just very happy to invite people to contact me if they'd like to talk about environmental. Um, how to talk about environmental evidence or think about whether people are responsive to certain kinds of messages or not. I'm, I'm always interested to hear about what you're working on and, um, and you can find me on Twitter, Cameron Brick, or on my website. Nice. Excellent. Thanks, Cameron. Thank you, Dan. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. Cheers. The handshake thing. Thanks. <laughs> uh, cool. Yeah, thanks for doing that. There you have it. My conversation with Cameron Brick. Cameron's website is CameronBrick.com, simply enough. And his Twitter handle, like he mentioned, is at Cameron Brick. Spelled like you think it would. C-A-M-E-R-O-N. Brick is B-R-I-C-K. I should mention um, Podpedia. Podpedia.org is an emerging podcast wiki. And they kindly agreed to list our site on their podcast wiki. Like every uh, Wikipedia-style thing, it can be edited by anyone. You can add, uh, as to have your podcast added on there, you can go and edit, um, see pages of other podcasts on there, so go check it out and see what you think about that. Um, on Cameron's website, you can find the study that we talked about, the Nature Communication Study, that is by uh, Ford, Brick, Blaufuss, and Deakins. Nature Communications is an open-access paper about gender inequality and speaking opportunities at the AGU fall meeting. So go check that paper out to digest that a bit. Thanks for joining us. I hope you enjoyed it. That's uh, basically it. No more announcements. Uh, I try to release these every two weeks or so. Hopefully I should be able to keep that up. So take care and talk to you later. Bye.